other kids make fun of him because of how young he looks. Nobody includes him. They call him the narc behind his back. They do? One day, he'll be cool. Let's see, you're the kid who's been sending me those articles from the school newspaper. What do you like, the star of your school? They hate me. This is Rolling Stone magazine. We got a couple copies of your stories. I think you should be writing for us. We can only pay, let me see, $700. All right, a grand. I'd like to interview you or somebody from your band. Oh, the enemy, a rock writer. Actually, I'm 16. Me too. Isn't it funny? The truth just sounds different. I'm 15. If you're going to be a true journalist, you cannot make friends with a rock star. They're going to fly you places for free. You're going to meet girls. Oh, God, it's going to get ugly. I'm telling secrets to the one guy you don't tell secrets to. I know. What's going on? Your mom called! I have family members with severe anxiety problems. Hey, you want to go to a party with some good people looking to have a good time? Don't take drugs! Your mom kind of freaked me out. It's Bowie! Rock stars have kidnapped my son. I am a golden god! you make the point of saying someone's not a genius. You think I'm especially not a genius? Welcome to another installment of The Greatest Moments in the History of Forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 261, Almost Famous, Revisited. One of those movies that really an era of my life was dedicated to, but also for the early days of the pod, a topic that garnered a lot of interest when almost no one was interested in our show. (laughs) Wow. I think by most people's definition, that would still be the case yeah, yeah, right yeah. now. But the few people that would listen, this was the one that people brought up to me. Yeah, we went to the well pretty early with this one. It was actually right before we did Roadhouse. This was episode number 24 on June 14th, 2016. So we were about six months into the ordeal. Right. 
an hour and eight minutes. I'm sure we're going to go over that today. <laughs> it was like, wow, how could you stick with us for that long? Back then, I was just like, man, what a long episode that was. We actually did go over an hour a couple times before that. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it was on the longer side for us. It's war and peace. It's all happening. Yeah, that's right. It's all happening. It's all happening. I thought it would be a fun one to revisit just because we went to it so early that we weren't really sure what we were doing yet. I wanted another crack at it. Yeah. And it's such a pivotal, important movie for people our age. We love it so much. Absolutely. There's been a handful of movies throughout my life where I just get in that zone. There was a period well after the movie came out. I was graduating high school, starting college, sometime in that era. Just watch this movie every day. Just like every day I would put it on. Not the full like thing, but like when I'd go to sleep at night, I'd put it on. I was just in an almost famous zone. Follow the show on Twitter at GreatestPod. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, etc. Give us a rating and review if you'd like. We'd be down for some positive reviews. <laughs> positive reviews only, please. <laughs> <laughs> if you'd like a sticker, you can let us know on Twitter, and we'll send that out to you for free. And you can find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983 and Matt Crosby on there. I don't want to waste too much time with the housekeeping because I have a ton of fucking notes for this yeah, movie. Yeah, really. We don't need to explain like where we're at with listener requests. We can cut that piece of it out. <laughs> we can cut out you saying that even. Oh, no. Almost Famous was written and directed by Cameron Crowe. It was released in the year 2000. I think for some people, it's probably one of the best movies of the 2000s. I don't really have an up-to-date list for myself right now, but I think I would probably have it up there. I would think so. Look, I kind of consider the bus scene with Tiny Dancer, it's like one of those, you know how people can remember where they were when Kennedy got shot? That's how I feel about that scene. It's that monumental. The budget for the film was $60 million. The box office was only $47.4 million, which is something that never ceases to surprise me because this movie's gone on to be such a classic and pretty much the definitive film of Cameron Crowe's career despite having monster hits on either side of it with Jerry Maguire and Vanilla Sky. Yeah, and Jerry Maguire like really captured the zeitgeist at the time. Yeah. like It was just so big. Everybody knew it. One of those rare times where, like, a rated R movie was really... Like, even... I just feel like families knew Jerry (laughs) Maguire, you know? However, despite the weak box office at the time, there was widespread acclaim, and it's often cited as one of the best films of the era. It received four Academy Award nominations. Both Kate Hudson and Frances McDormand were nominated for Best Supporting Actress, Best Film Editing, and... Best Original Screenplay for Cameron Crowe, which it won. The nominees for Best Picture that year were Traffic, Gladiator, Chocolat, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and Aaron Brockovich. That's right, two Steven Soderbergh films were nominated for Best Picture, and he was nominated twice for Best Director. Oh, God. Which he won for Traffic, however, Gladiator won Best Picture. There's some okay stuff in there, but come on. Almost Famous is just so much better than any of those movies. Yeah, I do think it's gone on to have a legacy that's bigger than any of those five. But that's how it works a lot of the time. That's right. The film also won two Golden Globes 
for best picture musical or comedy and for Kate Hudson for supporting actress. Okay, got and, the Golden Globe. And the soundtrack won a Grammy. Overall in the film, by the way, there were 50 songs used for a budget of $3.5 million. Oof. Most films, it's around a million to $1.5 million yeah. for a soundtrack budget. Well, they use <laughs> multiple Led Zeppelin songs, multiple Elton John songs. I, I wouldn't yeah. think either of those artists would be cheap. Yeah, we'll talk about the Led Zeppelin stuff more later. But yeah, that was a year where the Golden Globes got it right, and the Oscars seemed to swing and miss. I mean, do people care about Chocolat anymore? <laughs> I or know, Aaron that, Brockovich? that was stunning to hear that. I remember Aaron Brockovich feeling like a big movie at the time, but Chocolat, man, I would have thought that was a joke even back then. I think Traffic is a film that seemed very of the moment and it yeah. preyed upon people's fears a little bit. I don't know that it would be received the same way now. Stephen Gagan. I first saw this film on VHS. I had a friend that I think met, you've met maybe like once back in the day. Okay. We used to hang out in his basement and he had a bunch of VHS tapes, like a collection that I would help curate sure <laughs> be like these are the ones we need to get <laughs> yes and this was that era of first discovering good movies that i've referenced before where you you learn about this stuff the first time seeing all of these things all at yeah. once i think i'm in my second discovery of good movies like there was the first one but now i'm in the real one yeah yeah you there's know, the, the one where you didn't know anything yeah yeah originally <laughs> right we used to watch this movie all the time and since it was vhs I was accustomed to the original theatrical cut at that point, as you were as well. Because sure. I think when we covered this back in 2016, you at that point didn't even really know about the bootleg cut. No, I mean, I have, have watched the theatrical version. I, I don't know. It might be an exaggeration to say a million times, but it's somewhere <laughs> on the way to a million. The first time I was watching this movie with you, you just had the bootleg version on, and I was noticing a lot of the scenes being just extended. It was very noticeable to me. Yeah, we're going to get into that, the differences between the two, and talk about that more later. But yeah, this is a rare case where I do think that there's a significant portion of the audience who only know one version, but it's fairly equally split. Sure. Because the bootleg cut was the only one released on Blu-ray for a long time. Okay. And the bootleg cut was the second DVD they released I think under the name Untitled, which was the original name of the film. Okay. Yeah, I guess it's just by chance I had the theatrical cut on DVD. That was the first DVD they released. Gotcha. And I think that they only released that version on VHS. But yeah, if you got into this movie in the last 10 years, you might only know the Blu-ray, which is the bootleg cut. Which, but if you I mean, got it's... into it before that, you might know the theatrical cut more. The runtime is what, like something like 40 minutes longer? I think it's like 30-something. Okay. I have it written down when we get to it. All right. But let's get into the film a little bit. So for me, Almost Famous is about a lot of things, but I think that the film is similar to Stand By Me or American Graffiti in that it feels like a film about nostalgia. It's semi-autobiographical as Cameron Crowe himself was a teenage writer for Rolling Stone magazine. And sometimes sentimentality can overwhelm stories like these and ruin them, leaving them with something so far up its own ass that it's unrelatable <laughs> or self-indulgent yeah, or yeah. tone deaf. 
but that never really happens with Almost Famous, and the romanticism is the charm. Right. I actually was reminded of a quote from another movie that Billy Crudup appears in. <laughs> okay. Every day the future looks a little bit darker, but the past, even the grimy parts of it, keep on getting brighter. Oh, yeah. Sally Jupiter, <laughs> Watchmen. <laughs> and oh, I was yeah. like, yeah, that's how I think about this movie, because there is a real darkness to this movie, to this time period. Right. The drugs, the sex, lost people. It glamorizes being a groupie. It glamorizes the rock and roll circus life a lot. Yeah, yeah. But I do think that this movie is told through the lens of nostalgia and it smooths over the bad parts. And I think that sometimes you could look at that and be critical and say that that's bad. But I think in this case, the film presents enough of it so that you know what the truth is. Yeah. And then it still presents it from somebody who's looking back fondly on it. Yeah. And I would say it comes through. It sends the viewer down their own rabbit hole of nostalgia, I would say. Yeah. I feel that way about myself and my memories of watching this movie, but I just think that there's this feeling that definitely comes out of the screen. Yeah. You can latch on to Cameron Crowe's own specificity when it comes to his memories and his nostalgia, but you can take that and then transform that into your own, and that makes it universal. Yeah, yeah. You'll hear that sometimes talk of being nostalgic for a time you were never part of. This certainly rings of that. And ultimately, that's what makes Crow's vision of the past and Almost Famous so appealing. The bad stuff is smoothed over, the minutia is celebrated, and the good stuff is all life-changing. Stuff that could, would, maybe be traumatizing, it just doesn't feel that way. It's the excitement of youth and possibilities, almost famous, no matter how true some of it may be, still is very much a daydream and a fantasy. Absolutely. It's an adventure, rock and roll, and falling in love. Even the road element to the movie, the idea of these lives that these people are living, like being in a different town every day, there's just such a sense of adventure to that, and it's like this whole other life that if you were used to living one town and never left there's a lot of excitement to that although i definitely look at it differently than i did when i was 20 and i was like oh man this seems awesome now i'm like this seems terrible and so exhausting (laughs) yeah and i think especially when you watch both cuts of the film and one thing that is beneficial about the bootleg cut is it does provide way more character development and context and you feel like you know everybody more sure yeah And so even though I think the plot is slightly less concise and clear, you do latch on to their emotions a little bit more. And the the heartbreak feels real and and the sadness comes across even more clear. Oh, yeah. A big part of this movie, especially from Penny Lane's perspective, is projecting a fantasy, a fantasy world. She talks about like, oh, if someone ever talked to me like that in the real world and... She doesn't use her real name. She is very much like self-aggrandizing, building her own mythology. But underneath that, I think there's a lot of loneliness, sadness, despair. Well, definitely. And confusion as to why things aren't working out the way she thinks that they should. And you have to read into it a little bit more. And that's that sort of speaks to what you were talking about in terms of viewing the film differently as you get older. You pick up on things more and you relate to things differently even if you're not necessarily seeing something you didn't see the first time right 
your reaction to it is very much different as you age and mature. Yeah, I think what everything builds to for the Penny Lane character makes a lot more sense looking at it through more experienced eyes. I probably was watching this when I was a lot younger, like much more like where the William character is at. I wasn't 15, but I wasn't super far removed from that. Yeah. The band at the center of Almost Famous is called Stillwater, and Stillwater is a composite band, mostly the Allman Brothers, Leonard Skinner, The Who. I think Cameron Crowe based Russell off of Glenn Fry of the Eagles a little bit. Okay. All bands that he spent time with yeah, when yeah. he was a young writer. But Stillwater is also the name of a real band from that time period, which has nothing to do with this one, and they actually had to give a little bit of money to just to, yeah. to make it work. It is a good name, I think. A good rock a good seventies rock band name. Peter Frampton served as the technical consultant and he also wrote two of the Stillwater songs for the movie. Cameron Crowe and his now ex wife, Nancy Wilson of the band Heart, co wrote the other three. One Mike McCready of Pearl Jam played lead guitar oh. on the tracks. I don't really know what to say about which bands were influences for which parts and different things. If you go on IMDb trivia or you do different Google searches, they're going to come up with the real life Leonard Skinner plane crash as the yeah, yeah. inspiration for what happens in the film with the plane. But at the same time, you'll read things where Cameron Crowe was on a plane that they thought was going to crash when he was with the who. And okay, you're like, right. well, that seems like more likely to be the inspiration, but I don't know. You you see a lot of conflicting stories. Needless to say, you spent a lot of time with a lot of bands. A and, lot of famous bands. And pulled things from those experiences to put into this movie. Yeah, well, noticeably, the Stillwater poster that he has up in his room is definitely an homage to a pretty famous Led Zeppelin poster. I'm pretty sure. Probably, like, yeah. If you look at what the Stillwater poster he has up, I think there's a very similar Led Zeppelin picture. Yeah, and at various points... In the film, he's recreating a lot of rock and roll iconography. I think one of the live performances of Stillwater, one of the shots from the stage sort of recreates a live album okay. of Neil Young's, I think. Oh, okay. Different things like yeah, that. Yeah. So after the film came out on home video, I think in 2001, they did an immediate second release on DVD of the bootleg cut, also called Untitled, which was the... Original title of the film, the studio wisely made him change it. I don't think that the movie being called Untitled would have helped in any way. It probably no. would have done even worse at and the I box mean, office. I think Almost Famous is like a great title. Yeah. So between the two versions of the film, there are 100 differences. Yeah. Among those 100 differences, 44 scenes are with alternate footage. In the untitled version, there are 49 additional or extended scenes. And in the original theatrical cut, there are seven additional extended scenes, meaning there's things that appear in the theatrical version that don't even make the bootleg version, which is 36 minutes and 45 seconds longer. So there's a lot of footage. Oh, yeah. I was telling (laughs) you before we started recording that I actually was like, all right, I'm going to see if I can write all these down. I got to like six and we weren't even past the young William scenes yet. And I'm just like, okay, there's no reason to do this. It's easy to notice them, especially when I've seen the theatrical cut so many times. But yeah, I was actually kind of shocked as to how many there actually are. So for me, I'm going to, of course, 
take the cop out and say I don't really have a preference. I actually would probably like a third version that's that's like a little bit of a hybrid. <laughs> the greatest moments cut. Because on the one hand, the bootleg cut has so much more to love. There's just 36 minutes and none of it's bad. Yeah, yeah. It's all good. Right. Some of it almost seems essential. And that's where you get into, well, the theatrical cut seems too short. Yeah, yeah. Once you get used to the bootleg cut, you're like, well, there's stuff missing here. And people yeah. who experience the bootleg cut first feel that way. When they see the theatrical cut, they think, well, wait, wait a minute. There's so much missing. How could this be the movie? I However, think- the theatrical cut is clearer. The themes, I think, are more concise. You understand the, yeah. some of the motivation more because there's not as much fat. So I think both of them work, but differently. Yeah, I definitely feel like the Lester Bangs and Russell Hammond characters are more fleshed out and better. You just get l- longer scenes with them in the bootleg yeah. version. I, I guess think Lester- also Jeff Beebe. True, yeah. The, the dynamic between Jeff and Russell yeah, is better. I was telling, yeah, I think Jeff Beebe and Russell are much more likable overall in the bootleg version. You, well, you end on a more positive note between the two of them. Russell, while he's likable at times in the theatrical cut, he actually seems like a dick just as much as he is likable yeah. to the William character. Yeah, I would agree. For our the sake of our discussion, I think as we go through the plot and, and break it down, we're probably mostly going to focus on the theatrical, but there will probably be some references to some of the things from the bootleg cut, including... Some of the clips that we use may contain stuff from the bootleg cut because right. it ultimately doesn't really matter. It's usually just added dialogue and stuff like that. I think some of the key moments of the film are cut to the bone a little bit in the theatrical cut. I'm pretty sure that the scene of Penny dancing barefoot in the venue in Cleveland after the show yeah, yeah. is shorter in the theatrical it, cut. Absolutely. It's way more extended in the bootleg. And that's Cameron Crowe's favorite scene of the whole movie. Okay, so right. little moments like that you get to linger in and live in a little bit more. Yeah. Which is why the bootleg cut is great. One thing that jumps out to me, though, is <laughs> that scene after William first meets Lester Bangs in person after the radio station thing, and they're walking. <laughs> yeah, up. yeah. You see that Andre the Giant posse okay, thing or whatever, yeah. and it's like clearly uh, some art logo that existed well after right. 1973. Yeah, and it, it definitely sticks out like a sore thumb. Yeah, that's true. And that sequence is actually a little too long for my liking. I think the hard cut to them, yeah, like having lunch is better. One of the other cuts that I think is way better is when they reveal that he's basically going forward with this story about the full truth to Rolling Stone. And they're all like flipping out about it. And in the theatrical cut, it just cuts. And then you find out that Russell denied it all. But having that whole sequence explaining why they need to deny it all. I think it's better for the movie to not have that. Well, they have like part of it in the theatrical, but not the whole extended part of it. Yeah. I think it's because they still have the part where it cuts to Jeff coming out and being, like yes. you know, freaking right, out. Right, right. But then they go Yeah, yeah, it goes on a little long. The only part that's funny about that is Jimmy Fallon's character getting yeah. nervous that they named names because he <laughs> talks about hitting the drift. Dearborn, Michigan thing, which that's a that's the movie I want to see too. Like whatever happened in Dearborn, Michigan. Yeah, they definitely trim stuff down, but there's some good moments though, because that's where oh, yeah. he talks about I'm the one they get when they don't get you. Right. That was the same scene because they say it outside that Okay. 
outside the bus area. Yeah, there's yeah, yeah. a lot more. It's minutes and minutes longer. Right. Yeah, that's why I'm saying that there could be a hybrid cut. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know that it needs to be 36 minutes longer, but we need uh, Cameron Crowe to let us get a, a shot at this footage and <laughs> see what we can put together. But there's even more stuff that they didn't use, and we'll talk about that as we go through. There's a famous Stairway to Heaven sequence that didn't get included because they did not get the rights to it. And if you watch that scene, it would seem insane if they would have included it. I can't imagine it actually being in the movie. Okay, I I haven't seen this, so I don't know. So let's get into it. (laughs) It's a long movie. Yeah, we had a little bit of a preamble. Yeah, well, I don't think it was too long. Okay, that's good. No sense of time over here. But as I said, we're going to focus on the theatrical. So, you know, if you're really used to the bootleg cut, maybe we'll miss something. But I would recommend checking both versions out. If you haven't seen it at all, I would start with maybe the theatrical, just because that's the one everyone else started with, theoretically. But if you've only seen one of the cuts, I would try to check out the other one if you can. Right. Okay. Right off the bat, the opening credits are cool. You see all the rock history paraphernalia, and I like the writing of the credits in a yellow That's right. legal pad with yeah. a pencil. The music is sort of uplifting and simultaneously kind of calming. Yeah, and I think it's cool, too, that in the bootleg cut, he writes Untitled. Instead oh, of yeah, yeah, famous. right. <laughs> we open in San Diego, 1969. Precocious child prodigy William Miller, at first played by... Michael Ingarano, I'm probably saying that wrong. No, I think that's And then later, Patrick Fugit. Yeah. um, Struggles to fit in. Chipmunks Christmas music playing. Also something that makes me nostalgic, although I guess maybe not in a good way. But this is the type of stuff that my mom would be playing when (laughs) she'd be driving me around as a kid. William lives with his mother, Elaine, played by Frances McDormand, and his sister, Anita, played by Zoe Deschanel. Elaine is widowed, a college professor, and also overprotective to the point of smothering. Yeah, it is a great Frances McDormand performance. She's hilarious in this. She's also intensely strong-willed, enforcing strict bans on pop culture, most notably rock music, which has an adverse effect on her relationship with Anita. Stories. Shakespeare, you know, like those plays we went to see at the old globe. Anita? Hey, Mom. Want something to eat? Oh, no thanks. I already ate. Are you sure? I made soy cutlets. I'm fine. I already ate. Wait. You've been kissing. No, I haven't. Yes, you have. No, I haven't. Yes, you have. I can tell. You can't tell. Not only can I tell, I know who it is. It's Daryl. What you got under your coat? It's unfair that we can't listen to our music. It's because it is about drugs and promiscuous sex. Simon and Garfunkel is poetry. Yes, it's poetry. It is the poetry of drugs and promiscuous sex. Honey, they're on pot. First it was butter. Then it was sugar and white flour, bacon, eggs, bologna, rock and roll, motorcycles. Then it was celebrating Christmas on a day in September when you knew it wouldn't be commercialized. What else are you going to ban? Honey, you want to rebel against knowledge. I'm trying to give you the cliff notes on how to live life in this world. We're like nobody else I know. 
I am a college professor. Why can't I teach my own kids? Use me. Daryl says that you use knowledge to keep me down. He says I'm a yes person and you are trying to raise us in a no environment. Well, clearly, no is a word Daryl doesn't hear much. I can't live here! I hate you! Even William hates you! I don't hate her. You do hate her. You don't even know the truth. Sweetheart, don't be a drama queen. Fuck you! Hey! This is a house of lies! There it is. Your sister used the F word. I think she said feck. What's the difference? The louder you. At this point in 69, William is still young enough to only believe in his mother, so he hasn't started rebelling yet. But That's there's right. tension between Anita and Elaine. Well, he almost has to overcompensate for the situation with Anita and Elaine. Like, he has to be more loyal to Elaine just because of the ongoing animosity there. William's life is further complicated after learning that his mother has falsely led him to believe he is 12 years old. William is actually 11, having started the first grade at five years old and skipping fifth grade altogether. I look so much younger than everyone else. Enjoy it while you can. Mom, it's time. Can this wait till we get home? Mom, pull over. Tell him the truth. Tell him how old he is. He knows how old he is. The other kids make fun of him because of how young he looks. Nobody includes him. They call him the narc behind his back. They do? What's a narc? A narcotics officer. Well, what's wrong with that? Come on, you guys. It's no big deal. I'm 12. She skipped me a grade. Big deal. I'm a year younger. They're 13. I'm 12. Aren't I? I also put you in first grade when you were five, and I never told you. So I'm how old? Don't you realize that this is going to scar him forever? Sweetheart, don't be Cleopatra. We have to be both his mother and his daddy. You put too much pressure on him. How old? And when he rebels in some strange and odd way, don't blame me. Am I? I skipped you an extra grade. You're 11. 11? So you skipped fifth grade. There's too much padding in the grades. I taught elementary school. Eleven! You also skipped kindergarten because I taught it to you when you were four. This explains so much. You've robbed him of an adolescence. <laughs> adolescence is a marketing tool. Honey, I know you were expecting puberty, but you're just going to have to shine it on for a little while. Who needs a crowd? Who put such a high premium on being typical? You're unique. You're two years ahead of everybody. Take those extra years and do what you want. Go to Europe for a year. Take a look around. See what you like. Follow your dream. You'll still be the youngest lawyer in the country. Your dad was so proud of you. He knew that you were a predominantly accelerated child. What about me? You are rebellious and ungrateful of my love. Well, somebody's got to be normal around here. Eleven? 
11. So he's actually two full years younger than everyone else in his grade, which in the theatrical cut is definitely condensed into like a very small little summary. In the bootleg cut, you actually see a lot more scenes of how this is impacting him on a (laughs) day-to-day basis. Not positively. Two full years is is a big jump at a certain point. Yeah, yeah. He's like the Doogie Howser of San Diego. (laughs) That's the thing. His mom definitely plays a part in some trauma for him. It's not all of this rock star life that he goes and pursues. Oh, no, no, no. She definitely is way too overprotective, and she's pushed both of her kids away with anita it was much more of a confrontational thing but with william overbearing being just sort of he's not gonna like confront her face to face but he's basically gonna force his way out to do this thing that he needs to do which is where the stairway to heaven scene actually factors in we'll get to that later yeah can you imagine graduating high school basically when you're 15 no it almost seems like well what was it all worth are you really like age appropriate to start college at that point? Go to Europe. Yeah. Look around. <laughs> see what Take you a like. Year. But she's willing to have him go to Europe, but then doesn't really want him traveling around the country. Right. Elaine's lockdown atmosphere finally drives Anita, now 18 years old, to leave home. She moves to San Francisco to become a flight attendant. However, she doesn't leave her younger brother empty handed. Secretly, she turns over a collection of rock albums to help set William free. Ends up being like a uh, formative experience for him. Oh, yeah. I definitely think that in the theatrical cut, the through line of Anita's influence is even more clear. Oh, for sure. It's definitely the thing that changes his life and sets him on this path. These old records that William looks through are actually Cameron Crowe's saved from his younger years anita pulls such a legendary move by explaining why she's leaving by playing a song from a record oh yeah america (laughs) by simon and garfunkel that's just such a oh oh man well listen i can't have the conversation with you but i would just be like if we watch this scene from this movie or listen to this song that'll explain how i feel about the situation (laughs) it's fantastic use of the song too absolutely i like that she's hiding the the records like underneath her bed i actually (laughs) This is sort of embarrassing, not for me, but I had a friend, I guess we would have been in high school because it was when he had a driver's license, but like his parents didn't want him to have like parental advisory CDs. Oh, sure. So he like kept them in his car, like under the seat of his car. <laughs> he had a car, which is what was so wow. crazy to me. Yeah. It's like, you have your own car? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking my time where parental advisory CDs were at least frowned upon was more like eighth grade. So yeah. Okay. It was just weird, you know, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it was it reminded me of that like she's got those records like hidden underneath I know. the bed. As if there can be anything horrible on a Led Zeppelin album or Crosby Stills and Nash, you know? <laughs> like maybe not Crosby Stills and Nash, but I don't know, some of the imagery on Led Zeppelin was a little sexual for the right. time period. Okay. Squeeze my lemon till the juice runs down my leg. Yeah, it just Come seems on. like so tame compared to like once the internet came around. Yeah, I don't know if Elaine would have heard like Megan the Stallion or Cardi B or head <laughs> would have exploded. Yeah. I do like the moment where she bends down and gets into William's face and is like one day you'll be cool. Yeah, even if she doesn't believe it. <laughs> yeah, well, just having those words spoken to you by Zoe Deschanel, I think absolutely. It could definitely keep me afloat for a decade. For sure, yeah. 
Maybe, probably the rest of my life. Yeah, a decade. Yeah. <laughs> for me. Yeah. In the double LP for Tommy by The Who, it says, listen to Tommy with a candle burning and you will see your entire future. <laughs> yeah, something that seems unbelievable that she would actually do, but is so cool for the movie. Well, it was a different time. Okay. People were lame. <laughs> <laughs> Planning secret messages. Yeah, things like that. Right. So we moved to 1973, and William is now 15 years old and more open to rebelling a bit. Oh, yeah, he's got the long hair. Influenced by Anita's records, he's found a passion for rock and roll. William aspires to be a rock journalist, writing freelance articles for underground papers in San Diego, as well as stuff for his own school paper. Uh-huh. And so enter... Lester Bangs, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman. Incredible. Great character and a great actor portraying him. Here's a theory uh, for you to disregard (laughs) completely. Uh, Music. True music. Uh, Not just rock and roll. It chooses you. You It lives in your car or or alone. Listen to your headphones uh, with the vast scenic bridges and angelic choirs in your brain. You know, it's a place apart from the vast, benign lap of America. Did you know that the letter by the box tops was a minute and 58 seconds long? It means nothing, nil. But it takes them less than two minutes to accomplish what Jethro Tull takes hours to not accomplish. You see, this, this is fatuous, pseudo-blubber, you know. I mean, which is fine, but voiced it off as art, you know, or the doors. Or Jim Morrison? He's a drunken buffoon, posing as a poet. I like the doors. Ah, give me the guess who. Come on, they got the courage to be drunken buffoons, which makes them poetic. It's quite an honor to have the world's greatest rock critic and editor of Cream Magazine back home in San Diego for a few days, Lester Banks. Live American woman. Have you ever the most brilliant piece of gobbledygook ever. Uh, give me some white light, white heat. Iggy Pop! Amen! Oh, I just put this on. This isn't on your playlist Lester, either. I just think it's a little bit early for that. Not for me. Okay, well, that was Lester Bangs. This is Alice Wisdom, and here's Iggy Pop. Well, Lester Bangs is a real guy was which is also a cool element to the movie who lived from 1948 to 1982 he was a gonzo music journalist very influential he actually was fired from rolling stone in 1973 so that sort of is interesting when you factor in the time period of this movie so that actually kind of it works for the movie too because it's almost like he's helping this kid it does seem like he's taking pleasure out of helping him with this whole rolling stone thing in a way that seems like he has a hidden agenda. Well, he was fired from Rolling Stone for being like too negative. <laughs> Lester Banks is sort of... Tell him it's a think piece. Interesting, because he's one of those guys who, if you just judge him by his opinion, I think that some people would have a problem with it. He would trash bands that have gone on to be considered all-time classic legendary bands and right. stuff. But it's more about his style and the way he wrote and the passion and that kind of a thing versus what his actual opinions were. Reading a little bit about him, it seemed like there was like a Howard Stern thing there of 
not wanting to glorify these rock stars and celebrities and treat them like they're the same as you and me. And yes, he did encounter a young Cameron Crowe and serve as a bit of a mentor. So that is true to life. Philip Seymour Hoffman was Cameron Crowe's first pick, but Jack Black and John Favreau were also considered. I could definitely see Jack Black yeah. doing a version of this. It seems like he could have slid in there, but I don't think anyone would have been better than Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah, so to build upon the days of my friend's basement and the VHS tapes and discovering all these movies, yeah. it was quite a shock to realize that this guy was the same guy from Boogie Nights right. and The Big Lebowski. and Brant. It's one of those <laughs> moments where you're just like, holy shit, this oh, guy yeah. is in every great movie. <laughs> and he really flexes in his time on screen. He's entertaining, but there's an emotion there. There's a deepness to the character. The part where he's like, talking about being home and being uncool yeah I, I don't know that i just feel like he's really he brings a lot more depth to the character than what it could be at initial glance yeah i think he only worked on the film for like four days and had a cold the whole time or something but okay. he really delivers that part he's talking about i used to do speed a little cough syrup maybe <laughs> stay up all night yeah. just to write <laughs> Williams sends his articles to Lester Bangs, who is impressed with Williams' writing and gives him a $35 assignment to review a Black Sabbath concert. But you cannot make friends with the rock stars. Okay, if you're going to be a true journalist, you know, a rock journalist, first you never get paid much, but you will get free records from the record company. Fucking nothing about you that is controversial, man. God, it's gonna get ugly, man. They're gonna buy you drinks. You're gonna meet girls. They're gonna try to fly you places for free, offer you drugs, and I know it sounds great, but these people are not your friends. You know, these are people who want you to write sanctimonious stories about the genius of rock stars, and they will ruin rock and roll and strangle everything we love about it. You know, because they're trying to buy respectability for a form that is gloriously and righteously dumb. You know, you're smart enough to know that. And the day it ceases to be dumb is the day it ceases to be real. Right? And then right. it just becomes an industry of cool. I, I mean, I'm telling you, you're coming along at a very dangerous time for rock and roll. I mean, the war is over. They won. 99% of what passes for rock and roll these days, silence is more compelling. Yeah, that's why I think you should just turn around, go back, you know, and be a lawyer or something. I can tell from your face that you won't. I can give you 35 bucks. Give me a thousand words on Black Sabbath. An assignment? Yeah. Yeah. You have to make your reputation on being honest and uh, you know, unmerciful. Honest, unmerciful. Yeah, if you get into a jam, you can call me. This is one of those things that you just have to pay attention to everything they say. Right. 
at this point in time, after he leaves Rolling Stone, he's the editor of Cream magazine, which was another big rock magazine of that era. So it's not just like he's giving him an assignment just to do it. He's right, going right. to print this thing in Cream magazine. That's basically what's going to happen. Yeah. It's really ultimately a dream scenario for somebody like William because Lester Bangs is this larger-than-life figure that just so happens to, I guess, live in the same area. I'm not really sure. I know he lived in Detroit for a long time. <laughs> Famously wearing the Detroit Sucks t-shirt. Which I think is ironic because I think part of his career was talking about how great Detroit was okay. versus the other stuff. Yeah. But I don't know. It seems like at times he's supposed to be living in San Diego, but I'm not really sure. Maybe he isn't. It's unclear. I mean, he's at a radio station. Is he just doing a radio appearance? I don't really get how all of this media actually worked in the 70s. The idea of an editor for a rock magazine traveling and making appearances at radio stations, maybe that was a reality. Yeah, it's hard to figure like why he would be there. Right. I don't know. But it also plays into the ease of access because it's not like Lesser Bangs is a celebrity, but sure. if you knew about rock music and you read about rock music, you probably knew who he was. He wrote for the biggest magazines. And contrary to the way it is now, where no one gives a shit about this kind of stuff, right. that was sort of a big deal. And yet... Somebody like William can just approach him and talk to him and correspond with him. Like, how, yes, he's got the talent, but it's just that ease of access that was just different back then. I know, ease of access, but difficult to even find out that this is happening. If he's really just like making a radio appearance. Well, maybe they would have advertised it in advance yeah, yeah. on the radio station. But you have to be listening to the radio regularly to keep up with this stuff. I'm just saying, I don't know, like people did it somehow. No, this I know was the way it was. I know, I know, and I know it happened. I'm just saying, it's just crazy to think about in the age of information where you can just look this stuff up. Well, you weren't constantly looking at your phone. You know, absolutely you were just more tuned yeah. into the world. Right, you had your ear to that radio. Yeah, all I'm the time. Trying to get back to that life. You had that cassette that you were ready to hit record when they played the song you were oh, waiting yeah. to hear. Hell yes. <laughs> but to tie this movie in with stuff that we've talked about before with Inherent Vice or Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, this was the era like post-Manson. The hippie movement was sort of dying. The 70s were getting darker and more grim. Oh, the yeah. hope of the 60s was fading. And that sort of speaks to a little bit of what Lester Bangs is saying. You got in too late. You're too late. Rock is dead. It's <laughs> yeah. over. The Although Beatles he's talking about the commercialization dumb. of it. Yeah. But it all sort of ties together with the naive optimism of the 60s no longer existing. But the ease of access thing I thought was interesting, too, with when you research the Manson murders and just how like tied in a guy like Manson was with celebrities uh -huh. and how people didn't have as much security and you could sort of infiltrate movements and celebrity scenes differently back then and yeah, so a guy like Lester Bangs, who is definitely not a celebrity, right? it does make sense that just some kid can just start sending him stuff, and if the writing is good enough, he might have a foot in the door, just because there's no barrier That's true. there, really. Yeah, I forgot that part of the backstory is that William has been sending him his writing. So, I mean, maybe there was a correspondence he wrote him back or and something? just say, hey, I'm going to be at this yeah. radio station. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to be on that alice wisdom's radio show check it out yeah despite her reluctance elaine drives william to the black sabbath concert 
and this is the event that will change his life forever. As he's getting out of the car, she's yelling, don't take drugs. <laughs> Much to his horror as everyone's listening in. Yeah, this is definitely a Matt move to just find the most uncool way to show up at something, particularly having my mom drop me off. <laughs> <laughs> Your mom dropped you off here to record this. That's right. I do think that the impact of Anita on Elaine can be felt even in these moments because William is not as assertive as Anita. I don't see him putting his foot down at this point in his life to like force his way to be able to do this stuff. If she just straight up said, you can't go to this concert, you're under 18, I think that would have been the end of it. But I do think that how things ended with Anita... She's trying to be a little bit more flexible, yeah. maybe a little more open-minded. That's the impact. Yeah, like yeah. She's afraid of losing him too because her daughter has been essentially just left. But she's also taking comfort in the idea that she believes what William's doing is just a hobby. Right. She doesn't want him to pursue this as a life. Yeah. She thinks he's going to be a lawyer. Although he's clearly not like secretive about it. You know what I mean? It's not like a a hidden side of him. I would say he wears this on his sleeve very clearly. William is initially barred from backstage. By some dickhead security guy. And it's outside the venue that he first encounters Penny Lane and some of the other so-called band-aids. Yeah, really explaining what they are, not just to William, but us, the audience. So we have Kate Hudson as Penny Lane. We have Anna Paquin as Plexia Aphrodisia. Feruza Balk as Sapphire. Yeah, a movie loaded with recognizable people, which is funny because, as I was telling you, I remember when they were running trailers for this movie, I was like, I don't know anyone that's in this. Now I look at it and it's like hard to believe that all these people are in the same movie together. Bijou Phillips also as Estrella Star. Those are some of the Band-Aids we meet. <laughs> yeah, all sounding like real names, right? Yeah, well, that was part of the time. Polexia. <laughs> that was just the times, yeah, man. I know. Get with it. Right. Of course, in reality, they are groupies, but it's all part of the rock and roll fantasy. I'm with myself. No, who are you with? What band? Oh, Uh, I'm here to interview Black Sabbath. I'm a journalist. I'm not, not a, you know. You're not a what? You're not a what? Not a groupie. groupie. We are not groupies. This is Penny Lane, man. Show some respect. Groupies sleep with rock stars because they want to be near someone famous. We're here because of the music. We are Band-Aids. She used to run a school for Band-Aids. We don't have intercourse with these guys. We support the music. We inspire the music. We're here because of the music. Mark Boland broke her heart, man. It's famous. It's a long story. I'm retired now, visiting friends. You know, she was the one who changed everything. She was the one who said, no more sex. No more exploiting our bodies and our hearts. Right, right. Just blowjobs, and that's it. (laughs) It's all happening. It's all happening. It's all all happening. It's all happening. Okay. It's all happening. This is our journalist friend. Journalist friend, meet Plexia Aphrodisia, Estrella Star. You are... William Miller. You 
I think I saw Sapphire in that. Does anybody remember Penny Lane is considered a veteran groupie, describing herself as retired, despite the fact that she seems no older than 20. Yeah, and seemingly returning from retirement pretty early. Well, I think that's part of the illusion. Yeah, like yeah. She's believing this narrative... But she can't really step away because she's actually in love, even though that's one right. of the rules. You know, it's a whole thing. Oh, yeah. It's a front. The term Band-Aids is something she invented to describe female fans that are there more for the music than the rock stars themselves. Well, wouldn't that just be somebody that attends the show? You would think. <laughs> well, as Estrella Star says, just blowjobs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Penny Lane is loosely based on Penny Lane Trumbull who during the 1970s formed the Flying Garter Girls, which I guess is something similar to the Band-Aids. Okay. Also, Pamela DeBar and B.B. Buell, famously Liv Tyler's mother. Oh, yeah. So let's get into the casting scenarios here. So originally, Sarah Pauly was going to be Penny Lane. And Kate Hudson was originally going to be Anita, William's sister. And we'll circle back to this later, but there was a big change a big shift in the casting that happened i'm not entirely sure that sarah Polly dropped out because of it but it seemed like things were going in one direction and then they changed two of the principal characters was sarah Polly a known actress at this time well go had come out okay <laughs> all right yeah okay <laughs> i didn't know go at that point but yeah all right she was probably more known than kate hudson sure sure yeah well, i think I mean, she had been in like 200 cigarettes, but not a big part, I don't think, and not really much else. Right. No, I didn't know Kate Hudson. I I don't think I would have known Sarah Polly at this time either, but that makes sense. It's all happening. Yes. It's all happening. I like how that's just a greeting between people. Yeah. Sapphire busting open the door. Does anybody remember (laughs) left? (laughs) Robert Plant. (laughs) The girls get in backstage, but William is still denied. However, when... He seemingly has no other alternative than to give up. Yeah. Although Penny does make a comment to him that I'll get you in yeah, if I, I can. Yeah, I don't believe her. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. She's taking an early liking to William. The opening band named Stillwater arrives and William manages to flatter his way in with them, which I guess speaks somewhat to their fragile egos. Sure. <laughs> They're so desperate for compliments that this child standing outside of the venue can win them over to the point where they're letting him in with them not just coming in like hanging out back in the dressing room area immediately jeff bb being interviewed (laughs) (laughs) he just likes to hear himself talk so let's go through the band a little bit we have jason lee as jeff bb who is on lead vocals lee would also team up with Crow in the immediate aftermath of Almost Famous to be in Vanilla Sky. Mark Kozilek from the band Red House Painters and Sunkill Moon plays Larry Fellows on bass. Okay. Originally, Cameron Crow was looking at Jerry Cantrell from Alice in Chains. Not a ton of lines from... No, but slightly more than Ed Valancourt 
played by John Fedovich. Mostly silent, Almost mostly no not lines. a factor. Right. <laughs> and then Billy Crudup as Russell Hammond on lead guitar. The character of Russell Hammond was originally set to be played by Brad Pitt. But during rehearsal prior to filming, Crow and Pitt mutually decided that it was not the right fit. Wow. And yeah. Pitt dropped out of the project. I think that's right. And I'm sure those two would know better than me. But it is hard to picture. Well, they left in some of the dialogue that was specifically written for it to be Pitt, talking Golden about his God. looks and stuff. <laughs> yeah, I do think even that part of it. Sure. After Pitt's departure, Crow narrowed it down to Crudup and Christian Bale. Oh. Ultimately went with Crudup, obviously. Despite what Jeff Beebe would say later in the movie, I do think that Billy Crudup, like what they put together for him, for he has like a great look for this part. I mean, he looks like a cool 70s guitar player. Yeah, he definitely blends in in a way where he almost seems unrecognizable compared to like other stuff that you know Billy Crudup. Right, right, yeah. I would not have handpicked him for this role, certainly, but right. it works. Sarah Polly also left after Pitt dropped out, although I don't really think that those things were related necessarily, okay, but yeah. it just was a transitional time with the casting. Right. <laughs> Big changes were made. Noah Taylor plays Dick, the manager. He's also in Vanilla Sky. Yes, he is. Tech support. The hilarious dynamic of the band is established right away, as you said. Jeff Beebe never shuts up. <laughs> He's already giving quotes like, the chicks are great. <laughs> Within seconds. Some money would be nice. <laughs> yeah. Rock and roll is going to save the world. <laughs> Cannot stop saying yeah. dumb shit. While Russell who does take an immediate liking to William, always proves to be more elusive, which plagues the situation later in the Although, film. I will say, from Russell's perspective and him caring about the image of the band, you would think he'd feel more of a need to get involved about what's going on the record just to kind of set it straight from what Jeff Beebe's doing. Well, that's the thing. I don't know that he really cares about the band, which I think is the big problem well, between, yeah. between him and Beebe. Yeah, yeah. He thinks he's better than them and is always thinking about trying to do something bigger right which is more or less what he confesses to william later in the movie i would just be like i don't want to be associated with this image remember when tom DeLong said all these things about angels and airwaves <laughs> a bunch of crazy shit <laughs> i would just be like we gotta stop this guy <laughs> he's making us sound like dicks <laughs> well yeah william thinks he's introducing penny lane and russell but it's clear oh, yeah. that there's a history between them William's naivete on display more than once in this movie. Found you, Pass. Thanks. I got in with Stillwater. Oh, Stillwater. Actually, I'm 16. Me too. Isn't it funny? 
The truth just sounds different. I'm 15. What's your real name? I'll never tell. The enemy! Russell! Yes. Hey, hey. This is Penny Lane. Penny Lane, Russell Hammond. Pleasure. Penny Lane, like the song. Have we met? obvious that William falls in love with Penny almost immediately oh, yeah. and that that is ultimately the motivation of so much. Right. Yes, he has ambition to be a rock and roll writer. Yes, he does like being accepted by the band and he gets swept up in the rock and roll circus, but at the heart of it is Penny Lane. Absolutely. It's more like he's following her around at a certain I mean, point it, than the band. As we all know from life, you just get wrapped up in these situations, especially yeah. when you're impressionable. This first night at this concert in San Diego, it doesn't seem like he gets anything with Black Sabbath. I'm yeah, not really sure what he's turning in at this point. Well, I, I was wondering, I'm like, okay, was there any prearrangement? I'm assuming no, but it just seems crazy that he would just show up and expect that he's going to be let in to be able to interview Black Sabbath. Yeah. Although it seemed like Lester only asked for a review of the concert, so I don't even True. know if he had to re- interview anyone. Right. I don't know. But he's ambitious. This is just something he's going for. After the show, Russell invites William to L.A., and he also wants him to pass a message to Penny, so it's clear what the dynamic's going to be already, where William's going to serve as a buffer between the two. Right who can't be open and honest with each other about how they feel. Yeah, yeah. It's all set up. Set up pretty early. Yeah, right. It is funny him saying goodbye to everyone as if they're oh, all I friends. Know. Just and, listing all of the names. And Penny has to come up and be like, be cool, be cool. Yeah, just relax. <laughs> embarrassing himself. But he does get a kiss from Sapphire, so maybe it was all worth it. Oh, yeah. Call me if you need a rescue. We live in the same city. <laughs> I think I live in a different world. Speaking of the world, I've made a decision. I'm going to live in Morocco for one year. I need a new crowd. Do you want to come? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You sure? Ask me again. Do you want to come? Yes, yes. Gotta call me. Okay. It's all happening. It's all happening. It's all happening. You alright? Yeah. Yeah, great.
as they're leaving, Penny reveals all of her big plans and dreams and talks about Morocco and this whole fantasy that she's living for herself. And William I, eating up every word, 100% buying it. Yeah, I, I, I think that her whole life to this point is make-believe. And right. it's unclear what she actually thinks, if she even believes this stuff right now, but the events of the film sort of force her to make a decision, and then she ultimately does go for it. That's right. Go for this fantasy at some point. But at this point, it seems like it's all talk. How she even lives this life, I have a lot of questions. Well, I think there's one answer. (laughs) (laughs) She does live at a house back home in San Diego. She might live with her parents. I think It's it's really hard to tell. Maybe it is mentioned that she lives with her mom. She just mentioned her mom later. I don't don't know exactly what's going on. Everything was... A lot cheaper back then. <laughs> I know. The resources that it would take to just move out of the country, it just seems like impossible for someone who doesn't have a pretty good income. Well, we don't know. know what's going on there, though. But one thing that sort of fits in with what I was talking about earlier, the film being about nostalgia, but there's cracks in it sometimes, and seeping through those cracks is the reality and the sadness. And you can definitely tell that Penny is carrying the sadness even early on. But it's always juxtaposed with William's naivete, and he doesn't really see these things that way. Right. Which is why the movie's presented to us, the viewer, that way. And and it, it definitely asks the question of the viewer to do this work, to see that. Yeah, yeah. And like you were saying, I think when you're 12, or well, not 12, but however <laughs> you, old yeah. you were the first time you saw it. Right. You're going to interpret this differently, like when you're 16, 17 versus well, 35. The reality of what's going on, a lot harder drugs being used. Yeah. Probably a lot shittier behavior than what we see. Yes. At least from what you would go on to hear about stories from the road and right. see in some of these documentaries we've seen <laughs> in our time. But th- that's just not there. I mean, the worst thing you're really seeing is people are smoking pot and I guess... At least some of these guys careless with their hearts. Yeah, some of these guys are married or in other relationships, though. Yeah, there's some infidelity and some light drug use, but we know that it's probably a lot worse. Right. Some of it is probably or possibly shielded from William altogether, but then also, like I said, I think some of it is just looking back fondly and making it seem better in your mind than it, it may have been. Seeing it from his perspective, too. You're also sort of missing how shitty it is that actually Russell and Penny are using him. Like, I don't think that you feel that way watching the movie, but I think that that's true. At least to start. I don't know that it's, like, that shitty. It's more, like, lame. Okay. It's lame that they can't be open and honest with each other. I don't think they're really, like, impacting William at this point. About the fact that you're bringing a high school kid along. Well, yeah, the age disparities in this movie are strange all over the place, and there's a million of them. For sure. Obviously, William is right at the center of it, being only 15, but some of the Band-Aid girls definitely seem possibly under 18. It's sort of hard to tell. It feels like that's on the table. But again, all of that stuff is glossed over. I think at this point, though, to this moment, just using William as a buffer is not really like that big of a deal. Okay. Because they haven't really done anything, and William's not emotionally invested in any of this yet. He's right. just a kid. I mean, he's just there. Although, at what point is it irresponsible? In fact, Russell says at some point, didn't we get into this to avoid responsibility? But it is probably not great that they're all just have like this high school kid around, and they're basically treating him like a peer. 
Yeah, but that hasn't happened yet. Yeah, yeah. Really. But that, yeah, that happens more when they take him out on the road. Right. Although I do think that there's a moment in the film when Russell is talking to William's mother on the phone. And I think that's the first time he actually knows how young William is. Oh, yeah. Because he definitely reacts when she says 15. Right. He's like, what? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I think he thinks that he's really young, but I don't think they knew he was that young. Well, yeah, because it's probably impossible in their mind that a high school kid is working for Rolling Stone. That is one of the big conceits of this movie is why is no one pointing out that this is strange? Everyone just accepts that he's telling the truth (laughs) without much thought. (laughs) William lies to his mother, telling her that he's actually made friends and is going to a dance at school. However, he's actually meeting up with Penny and going to L.A. And yes... We are going to use a shit ton of clips in this episode. It's a real clip fest. Deal However, there's some really great shit that I couldn't track down. And, oh, yeah. And this is one of them, so I'm just going to read it. Okay. So she's explaining to William how it all works, how to be a Band-Aid, how uh-huh. to not get hurt. And she says, I always tell the girls, never take it seriously. If you never take it seriously, you never get hurt. If you never get hurt, you always have fun. And if you ever get lonely, you just go to the record store and visit your friends. Right. And it seems like she's the only one who can't follow those rules because <laughs> it feels like Polexia is in a relationship with Jeff and then she's just like, oh yeah, now I'm going to Europe with Humble Pie and she doesn't seem to care. Yeah. And everyone else moves on and is super carefree. Well, it goes back to that lesson that's in a lot of movies, which is you can't use logic to overcome feelings. <laughs> just is, does, it, That is the lesson. It doesn't work. I defy you to try it. Russell has a girlfriend, and I can't even say her name. (laughs) It's actually his ex-wife, and they've gotten back together or something like that. Right. (laughs) Russell's relationship with is kind of confusing. Maybe like a summer where they were together, but were open. No rules. Yeah. (laughs) A lot of people pop up in this movie in very small parts. We have Jay Baruchel. That's right, as as the crazy Zeppelin fan. Led Zeppelin fan. Eric Stone Street from Modern Family plays like a... (laughs) A clerk at a desk. Good in a small part. Mitch Hedberg pops up very briefly. Nick Swartzen is a crazy Bowie fan. Oh, that's right. Rain Wilson works at Rolling Stone. Polly Perrette, who was like on, I think, every season of NCIS as like that goth chick with the tight necklace. She, oh, yeah. She plays Alice Wisdom, the DJ who oh. is it talking to Lester Bangs. Right. A lot of people are in this movie that are known and recognizable. Penny leads William through the Continental Hyatt, a.k.a. the Riot House. And By the way, you didn't mention Mark Maron. Well, he has his own scene that we're okay. going to talk about. <laughs> those, people aren't, those people just aren't going to be talking okay, about, okay. really. Gotcha. <laughs> the Continental Hyatt House in Los Angeles, a.k.a. the Riot House, which I believe was still a thing up into the 80s, because wasn't a lot of hair metal bands staying there? Wasn't that like a whole thing? It's on Sunset Strip. I don't know. I think it was still like a, a rock and roll hotel even sure. through the 80s and yeah. stuff. I could be wrong. And William briefly peers into a room through the hotel to see a man and a woman singing a duet. Catchy tune. This is an homage to Graham Parsons and Emmy Lou Harris, portrayed by musicians Pete Droge and Elaine Summers. Okay. Parsons was one of the first musicians Crow ever interviewed. Got tonight. You and me, we're bound by heart. We need this world 
For this film, Crow asked Droge to write a new song that would sound Parsons-esque. And this song is called Small Time Blues. And I did listen to it on Spotify. Yeah, yeah. Recently. I, I added it to my uh, Apple Music as well. <laughs> <laughs> we are like the biggest dorks. Yeah. <laughs> they finally get to the room where Stillwater is and Penny and Russell fooling absolutely no one. Plexia just summing it up. <laughs> This is act one where she pretends she doesn't care. Yeah. Act two where he pretends that she doesn't care, but he can't take her eyes off her. Is she doing sort of like a weird accent in this scene? Sort of, yeah. She, she's like she's doing an affected voice. Yeah, I don't know yeah. if it's really like an accent, okay. but yeah. That she doesn't really maintain. No, I think she's just putting it on to be okay. like dramatic. Right. I think William was a little bit naive about this. He probably thought, like, I'm going on a date to oh, LA no. with Penny Lane. Because I think this yeah. this whole sequence where Russell and Penny disappear to the ice room. And right. I think it's all sort of an eye-opening trip of disappointment for William. Where he's realizing... It's all clicking. I'm not cool. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not a rock star. <laughs> I'm not getting Penny Lane. <laughs> Shortly thereafter, Rolling Stone editor Ben Fong Torres, played by Terry Chen, calls William out of the blue and hires him to do a piece for the magazine... William, of course, chooses Stillwater as his subject. This is what I was alluding to earlier. I think the inspiration is Penny Lane more right. than anything else. Yes, yes. Plus, he does know the band now a little bit, so he's got a little bit of a rapport, but I think I just, Penny Lane is the driving factor here. Penny Lane, the ease of access to Stillwater that he now has. Rolling Stone and Fong Torres have no idea that William is only 15. Crazy. For his assignment, though, he's going to be sent on the road with the band, and ultimately Elaine caves and allows this to happen. Like you said, shocking. This is where the Stairway to Heaven scene would fit in. You can find it on the Blu-ray as a deleted scene, and you can also find it on YouTube. And when you're watching it, it cues you up. Words come up on the screen to cue you up of when to hit play on Stairway to Heaven so it syncs up with the scene. Because it's actually insane when you watch it without the music, because I think they listen to the entire song. Whoa, okay. With very little talking in the mix, so that you're just watching people sitting in silence. It's really weird. <laughs> so the whole point of the scene is, like, it involves that guy that Anita moved to San Francisco with. Daryl? Because in the bootleg cut, I believe he comes back, and remember he, like, comes to the room at one point and oh, yeah. just hangs out while William's in there? <laughs> right. Because I guess they broke up and now he's just like reminiscing about fucking her in that room, which is really weird. <laughs> yeah. But if you just watch the theatrical cut, it's insane because Daryl's like not involved anymore. But he does show back up. But then in this scene, he's in it for no reason other than moral support, I guess, because he's trying to help William do this. And then a guidance counselor from the school uh, and like a teacher from his school are there. Right. And it's weird because if you actually watch the version of this scene that makes it into the movie. It's the same footage, but with everyone cut out and the song cut out. And it's just her, like when she's hugging him and she's like, at first she's like, no, no, no. And then she's like, you have to call every week. Right. That's actually from this scene. Okay. They cut everything else out <laughs> around it. Similarly to how Anita used Simon and Garfunkel to explain why she was leaving. 
they use Stairway to Heaven to explain that like rock music is not all about sex and drugs because it's like about <laughs> J.R.R. Tolkien and shit. <laughs> and they listen to the entire song. Even though it's a funny idea and it, it's somewhat interesting, if you would have actually been able to pull this off and put this in the movie, it would have dragged this to like a grinding halt. I think yeah. maybe Crow was relying on the power of Led Zeppelin a little bit too much. I don't know that sitting there and watching them listen to the song would have worked. In the same amount of time, they're like crossing states. That's what is happening in the scope of the movie. Whereas like they dedicate that same amount of time to just listening to one song. It seems like all told with like the deleted stuff and then the longer version of the film, there was just like hours of this movie that could have been in there. We need that like Netflix version, like the four hour version. Crow took a copy of the film to London for a special screening with Jimmy Page and Robert Plant. They ultimately agreed to allow Crow to use five of their songs. That's the way, which appears on the original Grammy-winning CD, plus the Rain song, Bron Yurard, yeah. Tangerine, Misty Mountain Hop. This was the first time since Cashmere appears in Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which Crow wrote, that they licensed their music for any film. However, they did not grant him the rights to Stairway to Heaven, so this scene was ultimately nixed altogether. Well, I think, to your point, probably for the best. Yeah, I don't think it would have worked. I think it would have been stupid. But it probably put them in a a giving mood, because it was only a couple years later that Jack Black convinced them for School of Rock, which we talked about when we did that episode. And from there, William is sucked into the rock and roll circus. Penny's around, Polexia, just pulled right into it. There is some mistrust in William. They're tentative, afraid, as if he's a real journalist. You know, make us look cool, man, that kind of a thing. (laughs) Pretty pathetic. Like he would know what that is. (laughs) William is more or less able to interview the other band members, but Russell repeatedly puts him off as he and Penny carry on. Like, there's no tomorrow, just like a full-on couple at this point. Yeah. Like, there's no day of reckoning on the horizon. (laughs) Yeah. Not a lot of future planning going on. No. Early on, at one of the motels, Sapphire ends up on the phone with Elaine, which I always thought was a funny and strange scene, yeah. because she goes on and on about William, and then she's like, this is the maid, by the way, I, Yeah, I <laughs> which like is that such too. a weird way to do that. I mean, Feruza Bulk is pretty entertaining in her character in this movie. Oh, yeah, I love Feruza Bulk yeah. in general, plus in this movie, she's great. And I think it's also at this same stop early on here when Russell confesses to William things that he's been feeling about passing up the rest of the band. And it's very candid and open. And so the band sometimes has this idea that they can manipulate William's emotions and they can tell him things, but they assume he won't print it. It's really weird because they don't trust him, but then they all ultimately say shit in front of him. Right. Their feelings on what, William presents like what he represents to them it seems to change it's always like in flux I I think there's this disarming presence to the fact that he is a baby face yeah yeah he's got that naivete one night while on stage Russell gets electrocuted by a microphone and this is where Mark Maron comes in (laughs) (laughs) lock the gate yeah which he still I guess uses on his podcast (laughs) (laughs) he gets into a fight with dick the the manager and they flee the scene without really thinking things through 
It yeah. is Which, uh, Jimmy, crazy. Which Jimmy Fallon will point out later. Jimmy Fallon? Yeah. As Jimmy Fallon. That's right. <laughs> he always is. my fucking dressing room and you didn't do your 25 you minutes. fuck with my band safety ever. Well, fuck you, man. I'm going to report you to every promoter in this country. I'm going to talk to Frank Barcelona you tonight. No, Frank Barcelona. You You're are a so bunch of amateurs, out. man. You wanna, Come on. You wanna, Come on. What do you got? What do you got? Take you fucking go. Hey, watch the shirt, fuck. Now I'm going to kick your ass. Take it easy. Take it easy, man. All I know is I hope you got a good lawyer, buddy. Hey, you better make a live album because this is your last fucking tour. What? What? What is that? What is that? What are you, Bruce Lee? Yeah, come on. Come on. Take it easy. Lock the gates. Those are the fucking This is your last fucking tour, man. Lock the gates on these fuckheads. Where's my goddamn car? She says to tell you, I know what's going on. So I'll see you guys in Topeka, okay? Amateurs, you don't know who you're dealing with here. Lock the gate! You want to buy a gate? Some other girls join the tour along the way. Beth from Denver, who's got the hydroponic pot. She's clairvoyant. <laughs> when William's on the phone with his mother, your aura is purple. Purple. What? what? <laughs> yelling. Even though he's so clearly talking on the phone to someone, I, I don't know. know why this is confusing. I know. It's insane. Tensions between Russell and Jeff soon become evident, and the situation is... Escalated by just a hilarious t-shirt? Exacerbated. (laughs) By the band's first t-shirt. Which, okay, here's a couple things about this. So at one point, Ben Fong Torres references that they've just released their third album. Yes. And this is their first t-shirt. Things were different back then. (laughs) No, I I truly believe that. I think that now, or even 20 years after Merchandising wasn't as much of a thing. Well, yes, definitely. Okay. That definitely is the case. But also, I think even like 20 years later, like say the 90s, it was much more make it or break it right away. Right. Hot Topic didn't exist yet. No, you're still focusing on the t-shirt. I'm talking, I'm focusing on the third album. Okay, like, okay. I think now, by the time you get to a third album, you better be something. Yeah. You wouldn't be an up-and-coming band anymore. Right, right. But I think back then, okay, so like even take Fleetwood Mac, like a real-life band. I mean, they had like a bunch of stuff before they finally become sure Fleetwood Mac and this huge band. Yeah, there's way more of a pressure to like succeed immediately now as a musician. Yeah, I think that 
you could still be considered like an up and coming band trying to find your sound. Sure. After your third album, whereas yeah. now that would just not be the case. It's and like, yeah, uh, Chris Isaac. Yeah, I definitely think that a record label might be like, all right, well, you sold enough to keep your contract going and we're going to put you out on That's tour true. supporting these other bands. But we're not going to pay for t-shirts and shit. Yeah. yeah. Like you barely sold anything. Like you're still growing. It's sort of like how if Seinfeld came out now, it would get canceled because the ratings were bad at the beginning. Right. Just things were given more time in the past to develop. And now everything's become like much more about the immediacy of success. Yeah, that's true. But yeah, the the t-shirt is a full band shot that pictures Russell in full view in front while the rest of the band is in shadows. Hilarious. And you can't really see them. Your first t-shirts have arrived. Yeah! It's a record company's mistake, and they will pay. T-shirts are gone. Band happy, all right? Can we just skip the vibe and go straight to us laughing about this? Yeah, okay. Because I can see by your face you want to get into it. How can you tell? I'm just one of the out-of-focus guys. Here. Take it. Let's take a good look at it, all right? See, you love this t-shirt. It lets you say everything you want to say. Well, it speaks pretty loudly to it's me. It's a t-shirt. Do you give a shit about a t-shirt? I'm just hungry, man. Let's just go out and find some barbecue or something. Look, I'm always going to tell you the truth. Are you doing coke again? Oh, yeah, all the time. This is big stuff, man. From the very beginning, we said, I'm the front man, and you're the guitarist with Mystique. That's the dynamic we agreed on. Paige, Plant, Mick, Keith, Blackmore, Gillen. But somehow it's all turning around. We have got to control what's happening. There's a responsibility here. Excuse me, but didn't we all get into this to avoid responsibility? I can't say any more with the writer here. No, 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 no. You can trust him. Say what you want. He won't write it. Look, I work as hard or harder than anybody on that stage. You know what I do? I connect. I get people off. I look for the one guy who isn't getting off, and I make him get off. Actually, that you can print. And yet, why do I always end up feeling like I'm a joke to you? Look, you want to pretend this isn't going to be a very big band? Well, it is! You call yourself a leader of this band, but your direction allowed this t-shirt when you allowed Dick to manage us. Because he's your friend. Don't you see, man? The t-shirt is everything. All right, is it my turn now? Because I think we should, for once, Say what we really mean. Oh, this is the part where you quit. Right, I'm so predictable. Deal with it. And let me just say what nobody else wants to say to you. Your looks have become a problem. Kind of a crazy idea, though. I know that we know, because it's been revealed to us through conversations, that Russell is ahead of the rest of the band. Talent-wise. Yeah, like he is the band. But I don't know. Everyone knows that and is just aware of it. (laughs) It just seems crazy. It's how, been the narrative. <laughs> how weird is it that the guitar player is more 
famous than the the front man. Now I know that that plays into the movie. Yeah. But how is the front man one of the out of focus guys? Doesn't that seem crazy? I'm trying to think if that would have been something that would have happened in any of those bands that I The Almond Brothers mentioned. maybe. It could be. I was thinking about situations more in present day, but it's usually the front person and they are usually an attractive woman. That was a whole narrative with No Doubt and Gwen Stefani or Haley from Paramore. Right. The other people in the band become less crucial to the story of the Although, band. I do think it's more fleshed out in the bootleg version and, and maybe only hinted at in the theatrical cut that Russell is definitely more of a maybe even the primary songwriter. Like the right. William interviews him specifically about writing songs and what were you thinking when you wrote this? Yeah. This is one of those scenes though that and there are a few of them throughout but this is definitely one where the comedic prowess of Jason Lee is relied upon and his delivery of the whole thing of your looks have become a problem. Yeah, I'll say what everybody's thinking. <laughs> your looks have become a problem. And just the way yeah. that Russell reacts to that, like, what? <laughs> like, I mean, the- it's shocking. This whole situation with... Although not dissimilar from a conversation you've had with me about the show. Yeah, I mean, this whole situation is reminiscent of the podcast. Although, in my mind, I am both Jeff Beebe and Russell, and you're just like the other guys. I'm like the drummer. <laughs> yeah, I wish that you didn't talk as much as that. My big moment is just declaring I'm gay before we're about to die. <laughs> William is sometimes jokingly referred to as, quote-unquote, the enemy by the band because he's a journalist and it is funny how everyone just accepts a child journalist. No one yeah. ever really questions it. But there is a crumbling of walls both ways. The band is completely candid in front of him. And at the same time, William begins to lose objectivity as he becomes integrated yeah. into their inner circle with a big assist, of course, from Miss Penny Lane. Some kind of shocking moments where they keep William around this one of them. When they well, what in... choice do they have? Yeah, if they want to get bigger as a band, coverage by Rolling Stone is about as big as they could get. That's true. And even though they seem to be like, "Oh, we don't play for the critics," and blah blah, blah the truth is, although that they, they deep seem... down want to be bigger, absolutely. And th- they're so full of shit with that stuff anyway. Well, yeah. yeah, I mean <laughs> yeah. that's the whole idea. Right. She was your biggest fan, yeah, <laughs> and you threw her away, right? <laughs> In the aftermath of the t-shirt fiasco, Russell and William head out of the venue in Topeka into the night, accepting an invitation to a local house party where Russell takes acid and freaks out. (laughs) And this whole trio of of events. So first you have the t-shirt, which leads into the party, which leads into the bus singing Tiny Dancer, like a three-pack right there. Yeah, yeah. It's a perfect stretch of film. Absolutely. None of it really matters it's yeah. in terms of the plot. And just some hilarious Russell sequences when he's on acid. I like the stuff like before he gets on the roof. In 11 years, it's going to be 1984, man. Think, Think about, about that. that. <laughs> yeah, I'm saying it doesn't matter in terms of the plot, sure. but it matters in terms of the movie. It is what makes the movie. Yeah, yeah. These little moments. Do you want to see me feed a mouse to my snake? Yes. yes. <laughs> and of course, the most famous part Standing on the roof, overlooking the dirty pool at the house. I am a golden god. 
I think we need to work on those last words. There's a lot of cool stuff here. I'm on drugs versus I dig music. I love the one kid. Yeah, yeah. Where he's like, yeah, I, I am on drugs. And then when he says, I dig music. And he's like, yeah, okay. okay. Yeah. Clapping lightly. And then he's like, I'm on drugs. Yeah. <laughs> I am a golden god. Yeah. Yeah. I am a golden god. Hey, Russell. And you can tell Rolling Stone magazine that my last words were I'm on drugs. We should work on those last words. Okay. Oh, I got it. 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 This is better. Last words. I dig music. I'm on drugs! Look, just come on down and we'll go back to the hotel. Okay. Jump! Apparently, the I am a golden god thing is something that Robert Plant really did, although he, I guess he was sober, and it was like on a hotel balcony like overlooking L.A. or something like that. Oh, wow. How do we know you're not a cop? <laughs> yeah, that part's great, although it is almost kind of scary. Yeah. I mean, I've been friends taken with some people. Yeah, with just like some lashing out? Yeah, some yeah. bad reactions right. to okay. usually drinking. but Sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know one. As you look across the couch at me. <laughs> well, no, just like yeah, crying yeah. and wetting your pants. That's usual for you. <laughs> you don't consider that a bad reaction? <laughs> no. I'm talking exactly like this. Okay. Getting in people's faces. So they get back on the bus. I love that everyone's just like looking at him and he's wrapped up in that blanket. They're just like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, really. But everything is smoothed over in time as everyone on the bus sings along to Tiny Dancer by Elton John. And it's, of course, Just the most iconic moment of the movie. Timeless scene. Yeah. It's right up there in terms of bus sing-alongs with Party in the USA from Pitch, Pitch Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> this made the movie for me the first time I ever saw it. I would go on to like so many other things, but this scene... You walk away remembering the scene and immediately going home and listening to Tiny Dancer like a million times. Well, that's the thing, though. You could not have this scene and it would be an A+. And that's what makes a movie like an A-plus be an all-time classic because there are a million A-plus moments in this movie and they're all great. But with And having this three-pack, the t-shirt confrontation to the house party, I am a golden god, to the bus singing this and now everything is temporarily smoothed over again well and even it's all great within the song scene when he just stops and is like i need to go home and she does the like Shh, you are home thing yeah oh Puts my god on, yeah. <laughs> on the road he gets in contact with lester bangs because he's freaking out he's got this piece to write and he doesn't know what to write oh yeah i, I need to do actual work for this 
And Lester tells him what to say to Ben Fong Torres. He says, call it a think piece about a mid-level band struggling with their own limitations in the harsh face of stardom. <laughs> He'll eat that up. And of oh, course yeah. he does eat it up. <laughs> oh, baby. When they're in Greenville, things take a turn because everybody's very bored. And he's sitting in the bathtub trying to piece this all together and penny just comes in and starts going to the bathroom while he's in there and he's freaking out oh yeah he can't handle this <laughs> and he's like stammering and being like well i thought maybe we could get to know each other and hang out more and then i could see up and yeah and she's like you would think she would be like um we're not gonna date <laughs> <I don't laughs> no she says who said anything about p right <laughs> <laughs> Just shreds that toilet right in front of him. Yeah. He's ruins. like, you know what? <laughs> I, I'm going home. Yeah. William just never dates the rest of his life. Yeah. That's part of the glossing over of nostalgia. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody has to shit on this tour. Well, that's true. Yeah. When I was younger and I was thinking about, man, it would be so cool to be a band or something and travel across. And then I was like, oh, oh man, you have to like tour Europe and it would just be like an endless quest of finding toilets. Yeah. <laughs> Sapphire, Plexia, and Beth come in and grab William, and they are going to deflower him. Penny's always with Russell anyways, but this scene is so loaded with emotion, with things that you can pull out of it, like context, because she's watching William get pulled into this, and the girls are having fun and yeah. circling him like a mosh pit or Penny something. Penny almost and... seems like proud of him. Yeah, there's like a whimsical look, though. Yeah. I think... It's supposed to convey to the viewer, like, hey, kid, I wish you were a couple years older kind of a thing. Right. Or maybe that's just William's memory of this moment. Is yeah, Thinking, yeah. like, maybe it would have worked if we could have been the same age. Right. I don't know if it's in both cuts. It might just be in the bootleg where one of the girls says, like, join us, Penny. I didn't really know. No, no, that's, it. It, yeah, that's in both cuts. Oh, it is? Yeah. Okay. I never really dialed in on that before. Yeah, I, I think they say it more than once. Either. Okay. And she is like pretending to cover her eyes yeah, and then yeah. like opens her fingers to look and then kind of ducks out. And so, yeah, I guess William loses virginity in a four-way. Yeah, anytime you're having anything that's semi-autobiographical, always a cool move to have you <laughs> lose your virginity to three chicks. <laughs> I mean, good lord. The next morning, Ben Fong Torres calls, although Sapphire answers the phone and then... Plexia is making noise and he's just like what the fuck is going on we're paying you to write <laughs> yeah, not really, to be a part yeah. of the party we already well, have the, a Hunter yeah. Thompson <laughs> well he hears Sapphire at first and then all of a sudden Plexia's voice comes on he's like what's going on over there but he tells him that the story is in consideration for the cover so everything is escalating because now he's got to write more than he's ever written before and he still doesn't have an interview with Russell Hammond seems kind of wild that he hasn't written more than that before well, I think that cover pieces for Rolling Stone used to be a lot of words. Okay. And maybe still even. I don't know. He was writing like smaller. Right. Maybe you know. he just means paid assignments. He never wrote anything longer than this in his. Well, I think he means like, like real school. articles. Okay. Sure. So they head to Cleveland. I'm not really sure. At one point, they're in Arizona. Yeah, I know. They're all over the map. Well, that's 100% <laughs> on management. This is just a poorly planned tour. Yeah, they're and Dick they're taking sucks. a bus. <laughs> That's the thing. There is a part of me that always is bothered by this in the movie. It feels like so much more time is passing than what you are told. Right. Because at one point, he's like, I have to have this article 
turned in in four days. And then it, based on what's happening in the movie, it feels like weeks are passing. <laughs> I know. You're just like, it's hard to get a read on that. Well, that's the thing. If he's like missing tests, but then I'm thinking like, you're not having that many tests right at the end of the year as graduation is approaching, which that makes it seem further apart too. The fact that he's at risk of missing graduation... What's, it's hard to say how much time he's actually missed. I really don't know. I'd like to get a, a final tally. We need a days. timeline, actually. Yeah. But they go to Cleveland. Russell ends up taking the phone away from William and talking to William's mother. It's a pretty good moment. I'd say so. Hi, Mom. I'm in Cleveland. Oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm, I'm going to fly back Monday morning. No, 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 no. I'll only miss one test. I'll be back for graduation. You're a slave to the groove. You can't help it. Um, no, Russell. No, Russell. 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 Hey, Mom. It's Russell Hammond. I play guitar in Stillwater. Hey, how does it feel to be the mother of the greatest rock journalist we've met? Ow! Hello? Hello? Look, you got a, you got a great kid here. There's nothing to worry about. We're taking good care of him, and you should... You know, you should come to the show sometime. Hey, Join the hey, circus. Listen to me, mister. Your charm doesn't work on me. I'm on to you. Oh, of course you'd like him. Well, yeah. He worships you people. And that's fine by you as long as he helps make you rich. Rich? I don't think so. Listen to we me. Si- He's a smart, good-hearted, 15-year-old kid with infinite potential. This is not some apron-wearing mother you're speaking to. I know all about your Valhalla decadence, and I shouldn't have let him go. He's not ready for your world of compromised values and diminished brain cells that you throw away like confetti. Am I speaking to you clearly? Yes, yes, ma'am. If you break his spirit, harm him in any way, keep him from his chosen profession, which is law, something you may not value, but I do, you will meet the voice at the other end of this telephone, and it will not be pretty. Do we understand each other? Uh, yes, ma'am. I didn't ask for this role. But I'll play it. Now go do your best. Be bold and mighty forces will come to your aid. Gerda said that it's not too late for you to become a person of substance, Russell. Please get my son home safely. You know, I'm glad we spoke. William keeps missing these return dates, and the piece is due eminently for Rolling Stone. Yeah. And then the record label brings in Dennis, played by Jimmy Fallon, who is a professional big-time manager to handle problems with venues and promoters. Yeah, you don't know if everything that Dennis says is true, but how are they losing money on the tour? This is like where the money is made. I think they're still the opening act. Yeah, well, true. We never even see Sabbath Sabbath or whoever they're supposed to be touring with at this point. Ultimately, Dennis is supposed to add professionalism Although the band is reluctant to change, and in the end, Dick never really leaves the scene or anything either. No, well, Dennis says your manager needs a manager. There's much more Fallon in the bootleg cut. I'm not really like a huge fan of Fallon or his acting, but I do think that the character of Dennis is sort of funny and I think interesting. So too. Him doing the whole respectfully, <laughs> respectfully, <laughs> but you know the the Mick Jagger joke is funny. Yeah, you still think he's gonna be dancing out around there at fifty years old? <laughs> Meanwhile, like he'll be doing it at a hundred. Yeah, it fits in though with the story that William is pitching to Rolling Stone. It's this mid-level band trying to take that next step, and 
the album's doing kind of well. They're on this semi-successful tour as an opening act. Are they ready to take that big next step? I think, as we discussed, normally in a more modern era, a band that has three albums would not be in this position anymore. But back then, I think that was certainly still a possibility. Yeah. And to this point, they've allowed Dick to be their manager. He was supposedly friends with Russell. And- because he's your friend. Yeah, and now it's like, do we take this next step? Do we get rid of our friend and bring in a real professional that knows what they're doing? Or just settle for both. Dennis also charters a small plane so the band can play more gigs to try to make more money because at the rate they're going, they're losing money, they're leaving it on the table. Yeah, which, what a waste. I would be, like, losing my mind. I'm like, really? I'm throwing my life into just being on this bus all the time and we're not even making money? I do think it would be more fun... To tour on a bus, uh, yeah, in a I think way. So. Even though you would probably get sick of it, but yeah, it definitely feels like more old school rock and roll. If the venues were like three hours apart, I think I'd be good. But the trips that they're <laughs> yeah. making, they're in holy Topeka, shit. <laughs> yeah, and Tempe, right. and Cleveland, and Greenville, <laughs> then New York. After the show in Cleveland, Penny's dancing barefoot in the venue with all the trash and debris of the concert. But that sounds worse than it is. It actually looks really cool and Oh, absolutely, beautiful. yeah. It's one of the coolest shots. While the wind by Cat Stevens plays. Penny has to abandon the tour before it reaches New York, where Russell's girlfriend, Leslie, will join them. But before that happens, Penny and the other Band-Aids are gambled away callously in a yeah. poker game leaving the ladies in the quote-unquote possession of humble pie. So here's a question. When does Penny start to drift over into delusion about what's going to happen with Russell? She's always been there, but she starts letting it slip in front of William more and more, like Uh, the mask is coming off. I think she's been there since before William even knew her. It feels shocking She was waiting for them to come back to California. Yeah, yeah. Her being there that night in San Diego was very specific. right. Because they referenced the year before. He knew he was coming to her hometown. Yeah. And I guess we don't know like what the hell their conversations are. But she but, does say, Leslie, who I can't even say her name. Yes. You know what I mean? I'm not allowed to talk about her. No, I think she meant, like, I don't want to say her name. Like, it makes me upset to say her name. Okay, not like, sure. <laughs> not like Russell told her not to say well, her I think name. it could be either way. It's this known presence that okay. when does she think Leslie is no longer going to be... A roadblock for this well i think that russell says things to her yeah i think that you have to interpret it that way she's a little bit delusional about it too because i don't know if which cut of the film this is in but she does act mad at him at one point early on where she's like i, I wasn't even on the list or something to get in right when they were in san diego so yeah like, for stillwater she, so she showed yeah. up thinking they were going to reignite whatever was going on the previous year and then she had to get her own way backstage and then of course when he sees her like it's on again but i don't know this time she leaves california right because he says in his message you know it ain't california without you it seems like oh they were on maybe a tour of california because there's a lot of cities to play and she probably was on all of those with them but this time they're going all over the place absolutely all the way across the country it ends up being there's a lot revealed though in the scene after this poker game right when she's talking all this shit, and then William is like, "Look, now you, you look, you dumb idiot." <laughs> yeah, now he's having to give the whole like, "Be cool." She's now the like, person like, like, saying, "Wake up!" <laughs> <laughs> she's going on and on, 
she's like, well, I know I can't go to New York, but I have my own tickets and saved and blow. And like, I can pay my way there and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, wake up. Yeah, I know. They sold you for a case of beer and 50 bucks. And she's just like devastated. Oh, yeah. She acts nonchalant, but she's the, the tears cracks. coming. Right. <laughs> she's like, well, what kind of beer? Which yeah. is a pretty funny line. Yeah, yeah. And it's a good like recovery moment for her. Even though we see the tears, we know this affected her. <laughs> but I think that's a good, I don't yeah. know, I'll come back. So if you could find out from Russell. Penny. Forget it. I'm flying to New York myself. I've got a bunch of partial tickets. I know his ex-wife current girlfriend thing. Is I'm, I'm not sure that's a good idea. What are you saying? What are you talking about? Did, did Russell say something? No. No, I, I don't know anything. Well, I know he wants me there. Wake up! Don't go to New York. Why are you yelling at me? I thought we were going to Morocco. There is no Morocco. There's never been a Morocco. There's not even a Penny Lane. I don't even know your real name. If I ever met a man in the real world who looked at me the way you just looked at me... When and where does this real world occur? I mean, I am really confused here. All these rules and all these sayings and nicknames. Honey... You're too sweet for rock and roll. Sweet? Where do you get off? Where do you get sweet? I am dark and mysterious and pissed off. And I could be very dangerous to all of you. I am not sweet. And you should know that about me. I am the enemy. Look, you should be happy for me. You don't know what he says to me in private. Maybe it is love. As much as it can be for somebody- Who sold you to Humble Pie for 50 bucks in a case of beer? I was there. I was there. Oh God. I'm sorry. What kind of beer? <laughs> Even though it isn't Russell that threw her into the quote-unquote pot, he lets it happen, and right. Dick gets his approval. He's like, okay. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, Russell knows who's going to be in New York. <laughs> yeah, they it, it, they it don't offer- want to deal with Leslie's shitstorm. <laughs> yeah, this offers him an out. He's building towards a bad situation, which ends up happening anyway. So they get to New York. The band jokes about doing everything for William except get him laid, and then he makes a face, and they're like, wait, what? He's kind of coy about it. If I was Russell in that moment, I'd be like, did you fuck Penny? Yeah. <laughs> and every dude in that car is stoked. <laughs> even the people that have barely like reacted to anything. like Even like Dennis is like invested in this. <laughs> Leslie arrives. She's played by an actress named Liz Stauber. We encounter Jay Baruchel again. Yeah. What's going on with him? <laughs> I get his whole story, but the way that he's acting, Miss Penny Lane is the... <laughs> he's just a weirdo. <laughs> yeah, okay, there you go. That sums it up. William talks with Rolling Stone and gets on the phone with Jan Winter and finds out that it's going to be on the cover 
and then we get our first introduction to Allison, the fact checker, which we'll come back to later, but just an Absolutely. all-time great character. Yeah, really. Just so mean. <laughs> I'm so in on her. William needs to send over what he's got via a mojo. Oh, yeah. They make like a joke about it, but it just seems crazy that this was ever cutting-edge technology. It, dude, it probably was mind-blowing oh, at I'm the sure. time. Where yeah, yeah. Like, what? You can send pages through it, the telephone? And it only takes 18 minutes a page. Penny shows up uninvited at the restaurant where everyone is celebrating the news that Stillwater has made the cover. They're singing cover of the Rolling Stone. By the way, it's actually still mind-blowing to me, sending things through the phone. <laughs> like, yeah, I the, still don't really get the yeah. internet or anything. <laughs> it never really made sense to me. <laughs> I don't really understand anything, yeah, frankly. Same. There you go. This is such an embarrassing moment. Penny's asked to leave after Leslie notices her attempts to get Russell's attention. Yeah, I don't know why she's doing this at this point. It just feels like you show up, he's at dinner with his girl, I don't know, his wife, ex-wife, current girlfriend, whatever thing. You just leave. Yeah, I mean, this is going to be a scene. William chases her to the hotel where he ultimately saves her from overdosing on quaaludes. So this is, again... The reality is a little more grim than the power of nostalgia. This gets all very sad and traumatic, and he has to witness Penny yeah. in this very vulnerable, this is upsetting condition. The darkest turn of the movie. At the table, when Leslie notices her and she's like, Does anybody know who that is? She keeps looking over here, and everyone simultaneously she's says, with me. She's with me. <laughs> and it's such a giveaway. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And the music kicks in, and it's another great use of Elton John with Mona Lisa and Mad right. Hatters. When William gets up to the hotel, and he finds Penny in her state, and she's just like Paul Giamatti in Sideways. She's like, <laughs> I'm a fucking pariah. Everyone's talking about me. You mean they were talking about me? <laughs> yeah, we had to have conversations about what to do about Penny. Oh, yeah. <laughs> It is weird that he says, I love you, that's fine, but then he kisses her. And even the little joke he makes about, I'm about to boldly go where many men have gone before. I think if this movie came out today, they would just scrap the kiss and scrap him saying that. Sure, yeah. It's a little slut-shamey. Yeah, I'm not saying this needs to be in there, but it it doesn't play as dark as it is. You know, there's definitely like an innocence to William's motives. I think... By maybe portraying it that way, that makes it even darker, though. Okay. It, it's acting like it's not a big deal, but it should be. Yeah. Kind of a thing. Okay. I think... Look, like, it's not like he feels her up or anything no, like that. No, no, no. And it, is, it seems to be just on the lips, but still, it, it's it's a little okay. strange. Yeah. And I don't think they would include that now, especially that line, which uh, right. is sort of like a fucked up thing yeah. to put in. It's I like, think what they're just trying to convey, though, is like her maturity level. Is, I mean, she's just on such a different life experience level than him. No, they're going for a laugh. Okay. They're going for a laugh. That's supposed to be funny. Okay, yeah. That's, uh, yeah. To phrase it that way, to make it like a joke about the moon landing. Sure. <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah, all right. Meanwhile, William's missing his class's graduation, which is funny that they are cutting it between him dealing with Penny's overdose and his class graduating. I know. It's almost- Three-hour time difference, you know? <laughs> a, a sadness to his mom actually being there and clapping for him. Yeah, I don't know why she's there. That's kind of stupid. Yeah, yeah. Still early, though, Mom. Sure. I'm 15. That's right. <laughs> Give me a <Yeah>. break. <laughs> Even if I missed it altogether, next year I'd only be right. 16. 
I think in the bootleg cut, there's way more to why he wouldn't even want to be back for graduation. It seems like his fellow classmates like hate him, <laughs> or at least are like super. He mean has to no him. friends. Right. Yeah. yeah. In the morning, when Penny is recovered after William calls a doctor, and, sure. and her stomach is pumped, and it's all very traumatic, but they she gotta does survive. Doctor there pretty quickly, I'd say. They might have one on on, on staff at, at, the hotel. at hotels yeah. like that. that okay. Are that big. Maybe. She confesses that her real name is actually Lady Goodman. Which absolutely stinks. <laughs> that's actually kind of stupid that that's her name. I get what they're going for, but you could have just had it be like, well, What Kate, are they going for? Just that she has like a lame name. <laughs> so like the reality is so much worse than this fake life that she's built up. Couldn't it have just been like Katie Smith or something? Lady Goodman? <laughs> It doesn't seem real. That seems just as like made up as Penny Lane. Yeah, maybe that's intentional. Though. Well, that's okay. Yeah. Penny quits the scene altogether and flies back to San Diego. And so now everything has changed. Upon leaving New York, the band who is now flying full-time, they're flying to a gig the next day, and the plane encounters a severe weather storm. Yeah. And things start looking grim. And by the way, by the time you get to here, you are starting to feel like, man, this movie is a fucking journey. It almost feels like after the New York thing, we're like coming to a close. Yeah. But then you have this whole other like climactic moment. Yeah. And you can really feel William's exhaustion building. Absolutely. It definitely comes across. Russell starts making jokes that allude to Buddy Holly and the Big Bopper. Fearing the plane will crash, everyone confesses their secrets <laughs> while Jeff and Russell's long, simmering conflicts erupt. What happened to you last night? It's a long story. Hi, this is Craig, your pilot. It appears we've uh, caught the edge of that electrical storm we were trying oh to do. So electrical storm? Now. We're going to do our best to get you out. Rock and roll. We shouldn't be here. I knew I'd earned it. Yeah, I slept with Martin Dick. I did too. 
It's an all-time section of a movie that is almost right up there with yeah. Tiny Dancer. It's not quite as iconic, right. but it's close. It's I love unbelievable. The, the best thing about it is the second person to start confessing is Dennis. He who, needed to get that off his yeah, chest. Who has, yeah, unquestionably the most revealing. <laughs> yeah, everybody has some dirty laundry to air, and it's pretty bad, but that is... I may have murdered someone yeah, yeah. and fled the scene. Right. I mean, that's just been like sitting with him for so long. I do like the stuff with Leslie and Jeff says that he slept with Leslie and then he confesses to still loving her. <laughs> every, oh, shut up, Jeffrey. Jeffrey? Every revelation, there's like this escalation and Russell just can't believe it. Because Russell starts out being like, I love you guys, you're my family, oh, and then it takes a turn, <laughs> and it gets pretty bad. They all slept with Dick's girlfriend. <laughs> Wife, I think, okay, was the idea. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's pretty bad. Ugh. And then, of course, they don't die, and everything's fine, and then they have the awkward walk off of the plane <laughs> where no one's talking. And <laughs> yeah. How do you come back from that? <laughs> no, the band would just have to break up. None of these people could ever see each other again. Yeah, but I don't know. I feel like the truth about bands like the Rolling Stones is probably even worse. Oh, I'm sure. And yeah. yet they just keep going. I think that some bands realize that you just got to keep going. Right. <laughs> no matter how <laughs> fucked up it yeah. is. As they're walking, William stops and realizes he's got to go home, got to go back. 
Russell says to write what you want, and it's time to part ways. Uh-huh. So William arrives at the Rolling Stone offices in San Francisco, but has difficulty finishing the article. He's almost like immediately berated by the team there, even though he has a good point. It's not done. Yeah. Let me do this, because he sent them a bunch of shit, and they're like, this is a puff piece. This is nothing. <laughs> Just a beatdown. Seeking help, he calls Lester Bangs again, who says that William got caught up in being part of the band. Yeah, this is one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie. He says his perceived friendships with them are not real and advises him to be honest and unmerciful. Yeah. And I definitely related to the line of, I'm always home. I'm uncool. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and basically, he's like, and so are you. Like, trust me, I've met you. I know. And he's, I love, I've met you. You're not cool. Yeah, I love when William is like, I know. <laughs> Even when I thought I was, I knew I wasn't. It's so good. So real. Allison, the fact checker, played by Aaron Foley, seems to be just like actively working against William at a certain point. Yeah. Love her. She's a firecracker. I was reminded of the part from one of the Seinfeld episodes when George falls in love with the woman that hates him so much. (laughs) (laughs) She just hates me so much. I find her irresistible. (laughs) I I was like, Allison and William need to get married. That's right. She just is so mean to him. (laughs) Rolling Stones editors initially rave over William's completed article, but when Allison calls the band, Russell lies to protect Stillwater's image as a lot of the unvarnished truth comes off as unflattering and claims most of what William has written is false. So Rolling Stone kills the article. Yeah, really deflating for young William. Completely crushing William, who is mentally and physically exhausted. Yeah, I guess like the good thing for him at this point is all he wants to do is go home. It almost doesn't matter. Yeah, I know. I always get that vibe, too, where he's just like, oh, fuck it. Yeah, I I just got to go to sleep. (laughs) Because this should be crushing for how much work he put into it. And it's like such a shitty way to start his professional career immediately. Yeah, it could ruin it altogether. Yeah, it could work against him. But he is just like, yeah, I just need to get to my bed. I I cannot be out in this world anymore. Anita comes across her dejected brother. In the San Francisco airport, and is excited to see him, one free of, of their mother, living his life. The wildest coincidences <laughs> like ever in film. The fact that she's just... Well, she moved to San Francisco. Sure, I know, but it's a pretty big airport. <laughs> <laughs> I can roll with it. I'm good, yeah. I'm happy that it happens. We'll say I that. I feel like out of all the airports that she's in, the San Francisco one would be the most often. There you go, yeah. <laughs> She offers to take him anywhere, and he chooses for them to go back to their home in San Diego. So there's a couple things here. First of all, the other stewardess. Are like idiots? The blonde. <laughs> Susan Yeagley. Okay. Who played Jessica Wicks on Parks and Rec, for all oh. my Parks and Rec fans out there. All right. She wasn't in a ton of episodes, but she's in a few. Yeah, I don't remember that character. She was like the really rich lady in okay. town. I think involved with like the candy It seems familiar. Company or something. We get Anita's tearful reunion with mom. It's sort of a touching thing I when you so. consider what William told Russell before they go to that house party when William's actually revealing some of his backstory. And he says that Anita and his mom have stopped talking altogether. We don't know how long it's been. Yeah. We don't really get all the details as to what's going on with Anita. Has she seen William since she left? I don't know. We it's don't really know. hard to believe that she would recognize him, but either way, 
I find this reunion to be heartwarming. There is something so powerful, though, about that moment when he goes into his bedroom and just Absolutely. falls on his bed. And you can definitely feel that oh. in your bones. And it's, it's relatable. Like, and I'm sure everyone has had a moment like that. Not what his story has been in this movie, but getting back to your home base, your bed after like being somewhere, or being on the road. It's just an amazing feeling. Yeah, I do think that this movie definitely succeeds at conveying the passage of time and how tired William becomes. Yeah, and how much of a grind this life is. He lived a very sheltered life for his first 15 years, and this would be a shock to any 15-year-old, but to him, this is a whole other world. Yes. Is Penny okay? The Quaaludes incident? Well, it wasn't pretty. She could have died. I always told her. Not to let too many guys fall in love with her. (laughs) I guess I was wrong. One of them ended up saving her life. William? What do you care? We all know what you did to him. And everybody knows. Even Penny Lane. Hey, Russell. Can you believe these new girls? None of them use birth control, and they eat all the steak. I mean, they don't even know what it is to be a fan. You know, to truly love some silly little piece of music or some band so much that it hurts. Backstage at a show, I believe in Florida, because I think it's his Orange Bowl on the wall behind him. Sapphire chastises Russell for betraying William. As she says, everybody knows. Including Penny Lane. Even Penny Lane. How these people are all keeping in contact, even. I was like trying to figure that out. I'm like. Well, Penny went back home. They could have just called her there. Yeah. Although I was like, is she giving her home phone number out to everyone? I guess. Russell calls it later. That's true. Even when Rolling Stone calls to confirm the quotes. Jeff Beebe's like, I just got off the phone with Rolling Stone. They're at, like, I don't know, a bus station or something? Well, yes. From our perspective, it's hard to figure out how all that stuff works. But that but, was just life. Yeah, I, I'm sure the record label knew where they were, yeah, when yeah. they would be there. There was ways to keep track of that. People had voice message services. You could call it and get your messages. Really? Not, yeah, it was on Mad Men. <laughs> That's how I know. That's how we know anything <laughs> yeah. about the past. Oh, that's all, anything from history. I only know about it if there was a movie or show about it. Okay, yeah, yeah, fair enough. But word has spread as to what Russell and Stillwater have done to poor William. and It's gotten movie. around on the circuit. And it must be all in a short amount of time, too, considering what happens by the end of the movie. Oh, yeah. This is all happening within hours, I guess, or <laughs> yeah, days. Yeah, Anita's still at the house. Later, Russell calls Penny, wanting to see her, but unbeknownst to him... She gives him William's address instead. Now that Leslie's probably out of the picture for good, she's not going to be scraps. <laughs> he shows up and is immediately confused, and it takes him a while, but he slowly realizes it's not Penny's house. He finds himself face-to-face with Elaine, who he talked to once on the phone. And she's like very sweet to him because she thinks that he intentionally is showing up here to apologize to William. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> Meanwhile, he's like, I just took three Viagra. What am I going to do with this now? <laughs> <laughs> Although Anita I was expecting to see someone else here. Yeah. yeah, Anita's still hanging around the house for some reason. And I was always wondering, like, does Anita know who he is? It feels like that. I don't know. She's a stewardess now. She doesn't need to give a shit about no. stupid bands anymore. <laughs> She's like, I gave my records away, okay? Yeah. I don't care about this. <laughs> Russell apologizes to William and finally gives him an interview. Russell has verified William's article to Rolling Stone, which ultimately runs it as a cover feature. Penny, meanwhile, fulfills her longstanding fantasy to go to Morocco while Stillwater tours again, but by bus. And the cover of Rolling Stone says... Stillwater runs deep. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, does it? (laughs) Yeah. They seem pretty shallow. I don't know. I just remember, like, when it cuts to the bus for, like, the 1974 tour, and it's, like, the No More Airplanes tour or something. Yeah. So they stuck it out as a band and kept going, despite all evidence to the contrary that that would happen. William finally got the coveted Russell interview, but it's, like, what actually would have been done with it at that point? Who knows? Yeah. Yeah, and Penny, I guess you're supposed to read into it that she's stopped doing this to herself, stopped hurting herself in this way by putting herself out there emotionally just to be used and abused. A moment of growth, maybe. Yeah, it's it's one of those things. It's almost like Dazed and Confused where Dazed and Confused is older, but you know what I mean? These movies that are part of our life and they feel modern to us, but there's so much about a time we didn't experience. Yeah. Yet, I think of this movie as a movie that came out towards the end of my high school time and watching it in high school on VHS. And so it feels very much a part of my formative years. Hard to believe that they botched the release for this just based on how popular it would go on to be for years to come. Not necessarily. Just sometimes yeah. it doesn't doesn't happen. Well, that's true. But I got to tell you, we talked about it a little bit before the show. It felt mismarketed. I don't think I really was expecting it to have the feel that it has from the trailers that I saw. Yeah, I mean, it's hard for me to really remember back that far to what I was thinking. And I do think that the lack of a big-name star probably impacted a little bit. It made it seem like a smaller thing. Well, it doesn't matter now. I'm sure it's made back that money. It's probably been a pretty popular home release over I'd the say years so. and everything and the soundtrack probably sold a lot of copies too using anecdotal evidence it feels like the most universally beloved movie that just comes up in conversations with people and there's plenty of movies that i'll talk about with people and sometimes to mixed results but <laughs> yeah it's got the universally high approval rating absolutely All right, yeah, so I think we went into it probably a bit deeper than we did back in 2016. This is our first revisited of the year, if you've made it this far with us and you haven't ever heard us do a revisited. Basically just us doing a subject we already did and trying to do it a little (laughs) bit better. One from the early days. This year, in 2022, we're planning on expanding our revisited section a little bit. Last year we did four right up until New Year's Eve with Roadhouse. This year we're planning on trying to do six. So that'll make ten total that we're redoing. (laughs) When you've done like 400 episodes, I think it's okay. We haven't done 400 episodes. (laughs) Not even 300 yet. Okay, well, you know, sometimes I exaggerate. So 
keep an eye out for those. They will be spread out throughout the year. I don't think we're going to bother with recommendations this week. So just check out Almost Famous if you haven't seen it, or check out the other version of it if you've only seen one version. I think they're both pretty cool, and they're very noticeably different. This is not one of those things where you watch two different cuts of a movie and you have to really pay attention oh, yeah. to small details. This is a noticeable change from one to the other. Anyway, do we have anything else to say about Almost Famous? I think we covered it. So follow us on Twitter, at GreatestPod. Make sure you're subscribed to the program on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, wherever you can find us. Please give us a rating and review if you get a chance. Hit us up on Twitter. We're always down to hear from a listener anytime. Totally. If you'd like a sticker, let us know on Twitter, and we'll send you one for free. We are available for listener requests, although it will take a little time to get to it. But we're always willing to hear what you have to say. For sure. And find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983 and Matt Crosby on there. We'd love to see what you're watching. You can follow along as to what we're watching, what oh, we yeah. think of things. Get in the comments. I'd like to interact with someone who's not just Zach berating my ratings. Yeah. <laughs> Your ratings stink. <laughs> <laughs> Folks, we're out of time. We will talk to you soon. Thanks for listening.
friends with them. See, friendship is the booze they feed you. Is they want you to get drunk and feeling like you belong. Well, it was fun. Because they make you feel cool. And hey, I met you. You are not cool. I know. Even when I thought I was, I knew I wasn't. Right, because we are uncool. No, while women will always be a problem for guys like us, most of the great art in the world is about that very problem. Good-looking people, they got no spine. Their art never lasts. And they get the girls. But we're smarter. Yeah, I can really see that now. Yeah, because great art is about you know, guilt and longing and Love disguises sex, and sex disguises love. Hey, let's face it. Yeah, you got a big head start. I'm glad you were home. I'm always home. I'm uncool. What is a muse? I mean, I was Josh Safdie's muse when he wrote Uncut Jazz. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like, things like right. that. 